historically, everything's kind of gone up as it should. So it's no coincidence. Like the stock market should go up. There's profits going into it. Like real estate should go up. Like inflation's a thing. But just because it over the long term will doesn't mean the short term it can't get messy. And you know what price people buy at makes a big, big difference. You know, if you bought stocks in the 2000 bubble, it took you what, 17 years to get back to even. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Thank you for checking out the Tropical NBA podcast this week. And I'm recording this a few days in advance. If you're listening to this on Thursday morning, there's 200 listeners of this podcast hanging out in Mexico City, sharing business ideas, just hanging out, having a good time. I hope one day you'll join us. We're also relevant to the show doing a attempting to do a live podcast, something we've never done before because we always thought, well, that would be a disaster. So why not give it a go? <laughs> We'll try to record it and bring that back to you in just a few weeks here today. We got a great one for you from a regular guest. You know, weirdly enough, a lot of us, when we started a business, the people around us were like, that's risky. That's crazy. Why don't you get a good job? But it's exactly those enterprises, which are maybe counterintuitively, especially nimble and adaptive in times like this. And not to mention, it's an interesting time to be an investor and to be an investor you need to have a little bit of time and a little bit of money, both of which entrepreneurship can afford you. And I, I met a lot of entrepreneurs starting out back in the day in Bali and Vietnam, dive back in the catalog if you want to hear those stories, have become significant investors through their entrepreneurial activities. And today's guest is just one of those. His name is Travis Jameson. His portfolio is really diverse. He's got like an SEO agency, an e-commerce supplement business. He's invested in a bunch of different businesses. And so He's really got an interesting perspective on the different types of investments you can make. In fact, that's basically what he does full-time. How cool is that? He's an investor. And also, he funnels that thinking into his newsletter and an online community, investing.io. Before Travis came on the show today, he sent me a Notion document with the heading asset classes. And it was like real estate, stocks, cash as a position, venture capital, crypto, avoiding inflation and cash flow. And so I was just like, let's just go through this thing and talk about it. So I expect to hear about all of those. And also we started here with a, a quick overview of the main factors that seem to be at least dominating the current investment environment. The first big one that is influencing a lot of what people are doing right now is this banking crisis that is we're in the midst of. The biggest bank that recently failed, Silicon Valley Bank. What a ton of banks did, especially some of these smaller banks, is they, over the last few years, you know, they've been getting all these deposits and they have to do something to make money with that. And of course, they loan some of these out and do whatever. But a lot of this has to stay reasonably liquid. And so what did they do? They went and bought bonds, like treasury bonds. It's the safest asset that exists, right? Well, it's the safest asset exists if you hold it to maturity. And that's where these, some of these banks got in trouble is like Silicon Valley Bank, they're not very diverse. Their entire user base is made up of tech bros, more or less, a bunch of tech companies. And as the 
tech was crashing the last year, these companies needed their liquidity. They were withdrawing money. They were taking stuff out, just spending it, like nothing crazy. And so the bank was just giving their money. You know, they have to keep a lot of liquidity. Well, their liquidity was getting low. And so it got to their bonds. Now, the problem is the interest rates have changed so much over the last year. So they bought these bonds that were valued. You know, they were, say like a 10-year treasury bond. I don't know what it was paying. We're going to say it was paying like 1% a year. Something I would never buy. That's foolish to me, but whatever. There's smart people who would say I'm dumb for saying that. But they were buying it with like a 1% yield. Well, if they can hold that to maturity to the end of the 10 years, then they just get all their money back. Plus they've made this little 1% along the way. It's fine. But the problem is they had to sell it to get liquidity. And these bonds are worth way less now than they were then. Because if me, Travis, if I'm going to go and buy you know, $100 worth of a bond, I can buy one now with the current interest rates. You're going to value it at the current interest rate plus a premium for taking on the cash burden, essentially. Yeah. So I have to buy that 1% bond at a big discount. Right. So these banks are having to go to like third parties to find a way to get liquid on these bonds. Like who has more money than the, one of the largest banks in the country? Well, it was actually more that they were forced to. So they had to provide liquidity for their clients. So they were forced to sell these things. Banking has a lot of like weird accounting rules that if on your books, you have these bonds sitting there and you just declare, I'm going to hold these until they mature. If you just say that, then they're treated as like they're worth the full amount the entire time, which is kind of true. If you can actually hold it to maturity, then it is worth the full amount. You know, you're not going to lose any money. But the second that you have to switch it to like basically sellable, I don't know the term, but as soon as you switch it to that, then these bonds are valued at the current rate, which is, you know, a giant haircut based on what it was. And so they had to sell some of these to get the liquidity. They had to disclose it in their quarterly report. Everybody read it and be like, oh man, there is not much money left in this company. There could probably be liquidity issues. And some tech guys found it out. Peter Thiel and them told his companies to take their money out and it created a bank run, which created this big cycle. Running out of cash. So people pull out more cash because they're scared, which makes them run even more out of cash. And it turn messy. So now is this going to be, you know, unique to Silicon Valley Bank, which has a unique user base? I got to say, I did Google Frost Bank after <laughs> I took a look because we actually were over the, the deposit limit. And now all of a sudden, it's very strange to be worried about FDIC all of a sudden. I hadn't thought about it in 10 years. Yeah. Well, you can actually look up your bank's exposure to these bonds, but it really probably doesn't matter. So Silicon Valley Bank was a very special one because their user base was very concentrated. It's all tech companies. Most banks have like very diverse user bases. Some of the smaller regional banks maybe have a lot of commercial real estate exposure and that's not in a really great position either. Bank of America actually had uh, more bond losses than a lot of the others, you know, like JP Morgan Chase and these others. But the government has backstopped all of this. And this is kind of like where I was trying to start saying is everyone is claiming it's QE again. And that is in a lot of people's mind, like the big change, like, well, we're back to quantitative easing. You know, the government's going to print all this money. If you look at the Fed's balance sheet, it's been going down. And then like the last couple of weeks, it just shot up really high. They're saying it's back, but it's not. So before like the Fed's balance sheet was going up because they were printing all this money and buying they were buying bonds, they were buying treasuries, or even buying junk bonds the past couple of years. They've been buying all this stuff, pumping liquidity into the market. In this one case, they're not. They are basically allowing banks to 
get liquidity by giving them their bonds, you know, their bonds that are underwater, and the Fed will give them money back at par. So even though the Fed's balance sheet shows that it goes up, it's really just like a loan. Like the banks are going to pay this thing off. They have to because it's a very expensive interest rate. And as they do, it's going to go away. Like the Fed is still tightening. So essentially what happens is Silicon Valley Bank or the next bank goes back to the treasury and says, we bought the 10-year bond. We need the money now though. And the government's like, cool, we'll float you. Yeah. No, they do this all the time with the discount window, but it's usually like short amounts of time and they don't value their collateral at like at par. They value it as whatever the market is. In this case, they realized, oh, there's a storm going. Let's just solve this. And I think the government actually did a really good job with this. Taxpayers aren't paying it. It's a loan. The banks are going to have to pay this off. And it's not a solution. Like the banks are still going to have issues, but this will lead to more stuff in the broader economy because banks are not lending. It's not a bailout. And quantitative easing is a type of bailout, right? At the expense of people who've invested in U.S. dollars. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to look at it. Quantitative easing is just pumping liquidity in the markets to like get stuff moving. Basically, driving down yields on stuff, letting people get out of different bonds so they can pump their money into more speculative things to get the market to go up, which is not what's happening right now. Like these banks getting this money, they can't go and gamble it. Like they have to keep this liquidity. They're just trying to stay alive. And it's expensive. They're charging them a lot of interest for it. Let's talk about what it might mean for different asset categories and how we might approach our portfolios or our businesses in light of this kind of information. You mentioned the top here, real estate. Yeah. It feels like commercial real estate is the topic on everybody's mind, but the hammer hasn't dropped yet. I was doing the math the other day on houses in my neighborhood and looking at how much their mortgages are. And then... I was looking at how much my mortgage would be if I were to buy the house. And then I was like looking on Zillow and noticing that none of the houses are there. They're all on Airbnb for short-term rentals. And I'm kind of like, something's coming, man. (laughs) So a lot of the carnage has already happened. It's just it hasn't been realized yet. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on commercial, but my calculation on the house that I'm renting as an example if the owner was forced to sell within 30 days, I think they would take minimum a 20% haircut. Yeah. So there was a tweet that went kind of viral. It's just basic math. So a $400,000 mortgage at the 2.75% interest rate, you know, what we had a year ago is $1,600 a month. Now the current interest rates, so a $250,000 mortgage at the current 6.75% interest rates is $1,600 a month. So it's the same thing, but the mortgage is, what is that, like 33% smaller or something like that? I'm doing the yeah. rough math. So the haircuts have to happen. With residential, it's not as clear cut. But with commercial, I mean, it, it always is. These guys are calculating it out to the nth degree. There's usually a, a whole lot of leverage on this stuff. Commercials is being hit from all sides. Obviously, the work from home thing is here to stay like warehouse space is less needed right now. So that's creating the perfect storm. But interest rates are rising and it's not like these commercial places are getting a 30-year, 2.75% locked-in mortgage like for life. No, they have to refinance. Most of these things are forced to... When people say commercial real estate, are we talking about, you know, the strip malls and the hobby lobbies of the world? Or are we talking about multi-use space? Are we talking about warehousing? Are we talking about office buildings downtown? Is it complete and total retraction? Is that what people are projecting across all these categories? 
I'm sure there are categories that are doing fine. I even would have assumed warehouse space was doing fine, but I just this week saw that warehouse space is also getting hit. I don't know, probably because the COVID bumps are slowing down for us e-com companies and stuff like that. But, you know, office space is, is the, the clearest one that we can all see. And so it's just, their stuff is worth a lot less than it was a year ago just because interest rates went up so much. Yeah. And you can raise rents and that's the beauty of real estate is you can raise rents, but you can only kind of raise them so much. I mean, a lot of these people are, a lot of commercial deals, you know, they're locked in for several years, they've signed a lease. And then when they end, like you're going to raise the rates, but a lot of these people are leaving anyway. So like in San Francisco, you notice we've heard like 33% of the offices are empty or something like that. But there's a lot of them that are even still empty, but no one's just because their leases are signed. Like once that's yeah. over, like they'll leave even more. Does that affect the banks more than anything? No, I think the banks would be just fine um, for the most part. Some of these regionals probably get hit a little bit, but uh, it affects the investors. So because most of these deals are done with significant amounts of debt. And so say like, 25% equity and 75% debt, something like that. Essentially, the equity is wiped out now. So the debt is left. Now they're going to try and do whatever they can to make it work. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of it's not like it's a bloodbath everywhere, but there will be a lot of blood in the streets. What does it mean for the individual retail investor? I mean, one of the things I've heard, Travis, is it means, you know, mark that buy price on your dream home. One of the narratives that Americans love is housing, real estate always goes up. I've heard people say this in a way that, you know, they're on the edge of tears. They're so happy to know this thing is certain in life, that real estate will always go up. However, even if you believe in that narrative, there are sideways shuffles and downturns that happen in brief windows. And yeah. if the narrative continues, where we find ourselves at the beginning of a window. So it could be a time to buy that house you've always wanted. I think it's good to be like, long-term optimistic about pretty much all asset classes. Historically, everything's kind of gone up as it should. So it's, it's no coincidence. Like the stock market should go up. There's profits going into it. Like real estate should go up. Like inflation's a thing. But just because it over the long-term will doesn't mean the short-term it can't get messy. And you know what price people buy at makes a big, big difference. You know, if you bought stocks in the 2000 bubble, it took you what, 17 years to get back to even. And the same thing in like the 2008 stuff, like people took years to get back to even, but eventually they did and it works out if they can keep it. Let's talk about the next asset class you wrote down here, stocks. Yeah. So there's actually this great book. I love it. It's called The Price of Time. It's like the history of interest rates. Uh, it sounds so boring, but to me, it was one of my favorite like financial books I've ever read. And the, the price of time is the interest rate. You could basically say the interest rate is the price of time. Money now is more valuable than money tomorrow. Yes, but like how much? So if interest rates are 1%, then why even loan it out? I'd rather have it now in case I want an ice cream tonight. That or on the flip side, you need yield. You need to get some return. And so you're going to reach for that yield. You're going to reach like further and further down to maybe things that will pay off in 20 years instead of stuff that'll pay off in five years. And the reason you do that is because in a, if you're in an inflationary framework, that's why people don't sit on piles of cash underneath their bed, right? Yeah, but even without the inflationary framework, it still would make sense because money wants to make money. So as interest rates have gone up so much the last year, the price of time has completely changed. And so now 
you have a lot more options in front of you. You know, I can get a 5% yield on treasuries or almost 5%, whatever. That's completely risk-free. That's amazing. And so suddenly these other deals that, you know, I'd have to like look way into the future to get my returns, maybe they're less appealing. Like I can maybe get this return in the future where I can get 5% right now. I'll take 5%. So that changes absolutely everything. With the real estate stuff, you're saying like the small guys can't even get mortgages. So they're not doing business. And now guys like you, the investors, you're getting such a risk-free rate that you're tightening up across all asset classes. Yeah. There's also the idea of like when to invest. Dollar cost averaging is still the best thing for most people. Yeah. So just cutting in here to say that DCAing or dollar cost averaging, typically for most people, it just means putting a little bit into your allocations every single month, regardless of the price versus trying to time it. I take like a modified dollar cost averaging. I don't really try to predict what's going to happen as much, but taking a book from Howard Marks here, you know, I try to like look at the current state of things, not predicting what's going to happen, but looking at the current state. And so, you know, over the last couple of years, I looked and I was like, well, the current state of stuff is kind of bash crazy. And so I'm not going to dollar cost average through that. A lot of people would disagree with me because I saw it was crazy, but now it's more reasonable. And so I am DCAing every single week into a bunch of different ETFs. And is it the bottom? Like, I have no idea. I want to say no. I want to say like corporate earnings are coming down across the board. So it's going to get uglier, but it's far more reasonable. It's no longer just absurd. Like the, the absurd companies have already taken massive haircuts and been hurt. And so it's more reasonable to go ahead and do it. And over the long term, being reasonable is what wins. Cash is a position. I've often espoused this and believed it, but I've never really done anything with it. <laughs> Maybe I don't have enough cash. Part of me just thinks I should have just dumped all my cash into assets right away. I mean, I didn't have a strong perspective on why I was like cash versus investments other than just a kind of uh, instinct about trust. What's your sense of? I mean, cash is optionality. I mean, of course you can get good yields on it now, but besides that, it's optionality. So the most basic reason people like to say is that it allows you to buy deals when things are cheap. That's definitely true, especially like what I do. You know, I do a lot of mostly private market stuff. And so I can hop on this. But I think it also keeps people from making bad decisions. Like liquidity is everything. You don't want to be forced to sell, especially like when stuff's really bad. That's the worst time to sell. So keeping a cash, like a heavy cash position can just help you like wait out the dips, wait out the bad times and just staying invested and compounding over the long term. That's how you win over time. So if having a higher cash balance lets you do that, then that's a win. Hey, this is Dan. Just to remind you, if you love listening to the Tropical MBA podcast, thank you. Thank you for listening. Check out our brand new website. We just put it up. It's over at tropicalmba.com. Since we don't do news segments on the show every week, the most consistent way to hear about the stories from the thousands of founders that listen to this show every week is to sign up for our newsletter. And as a thank you for doing so, we'll send you a free copy of our book before the exit, some templates that we use to scale and hire in our business, as well as some other goodies. You also receive one email a week that outlines some of the key things that are happening in our community, at our podcast, and with the founders that listen to this show. 
So check out our newsletter on our brand new website over at tropicalmba.com. Venture. So BC, angel investing, all that stuff. There's been a bit of a reckoning. Most people know like in the stock market, a lot of the types of like tech startups in particular, specifically like the unprofitable ones, they've had a really bad time the last year. Valuations have just been smashed, you know, many of them by like 80% type of thing. These are public companies. Uh, so this is what the stock is trading at. But in many ways, or actually in all ways, eventually like the valuations of the public stuff will trickle down to the private. So in you know the venture world, they're looking at public company comps, basically comparisons. So if a public company is trading at say like 12 times like price to sales, which sales make no sense to me why it's based on that, but whatever it is, then eventually like some version of that has to trickle down to what the venture startups are worth. Because eventually these venture backed companies, they have to either IPO or get acquired because rarely are any of them making enough money to <laughs> satisfy their investors just from profits. Profits are weird, right? So that's kind of crushed the venture valuations down with it, but it's made it a little wonky because the public companies, they don't have a choice of what their valuation is. The stockholders just sell it away and, and like kill the price. Everybody's rushing to safety. Everybody's rushing to the 5% risk-free type of thing. But the venture-backed companies themselves, their price isn't known all the time. You know, their price only gets kind of figured out a little bit whenever they, they raise new money. And that's where it's gotten kind of interesting and, and kind of hairy a little bit. So they're starting to play games. If a company has to raise money right now, like for some reason, there's a big stigma against a company doing a down round. So say they raise at a $100 million valuation before, like if they have to change their valuation and raise more money at a $50 million valuation, that looks terrible. The optics are bad. VCs, they want to see just like up only crazy growth, that type of thing. So even if they're growing the same, their valuations are down just because of like the public comps to this stuff. So they're playing these weird games. So let's say they raised at a $100 million valuation a couple of years ago. If they can even raise right now, that's a big if. But if they can, then they'll play some games where like maybe it'll still be a $100 million valuation. They'll call it like a bridge round, but it's not really. So the investors would get maybe a lot of warrants to buy more of it later at a discounted price. Or they're getting a much bigger liquidation preference. We're seeing some multiple liquidation preferences going up there. Liquidation preferences just mean whenever there's liquidity events, so company IPOs or, or not really IPOs, more like whenever they get purchased by another company, whenever that happens, then the investors get, say if it's a 1x liquidation preference, which is normal, they get all their money back and then they split the profits with everybody else. Or, but you're seeing bigger ones, so like a 2x liquidation preference. So the investors put in 10 million, they're gonna see 20 million back from the sell and then they'll split the profits. So you're seeing that, you're seeing the warrants, you're seeing a lot of other like kind of little funny stuff going on. And which really means it's not a $100 million valuation. If you're getting, you know, a 2X liquidation preference, it's lowering the risk to you. Companies are, are clearly having a lot of trouble raising now. Like no one wants to write checks. No one wants to take the risk. 
especially there's the risk of if we fund you and you need more money later, can you get it? Also, we're in the case now where profitability matters a lot more. And in the venture world, it's not necessarily like they want the companies to be just printing off profits and paying dividends. It's not the case, but being break even is good because companies have infinite time. They don't have to depend on future raises because who knows what will happen. Now, the big question is, as an investor, what do you do? There's a couple of different ways to look at it. And neither one's right, but I think it's good to know both possible situations. So for the bull case would be that as an investor, you know, as an angel investor, now is the best time to invest that's existed for a long time. That is because the valuations of these companies have all come down and the price you pay matters. A lot of uh, VCs will say that's not the case. And that's not the case if you happen to hit an Uber. But most companies aren't Ubers, so I think the valuation matters to me. If you look historically, the best performing like VC vintages are during downtimes in the economy. So if you invest now as an angel investor, these companies aren't going to have liquidity events for, you know, like seven to 10 years or something like that. And so the theory is if you invest now, well, by the time you have liquidity event, like the economy sorted itself out. Also, these companies are having a much easier time hiring. There's layoffs everywhere. And so there's a lot more talent at normal prices, especially in the tech world before like Google and Meta and all these were just acquiring every single developer they could that was worth anything. And all these other VC funded companies were doing the same. And so it was, it was really competitive. Now that's gone down. So it's a lot easier to hire good people. So you can kind of see like the bull case for now being a great time to deploy capital. Kind of a fair case for that would be that venture itself is kind of a product of low interest rate environments. So I would say like venture, it's success at least. Because venture's really only been a thing for successfully, what? just a few decades. And those few decades have been more or less a declining interest rate environment. So if you look at what venture is actually doing, these venture-backed companies, almost all of them, they're unprofitable companies. And most of them don't have an easy path to get to profitability. That's not always the case, but specifically the ones from the, you know, the, the last several years. And so you could claim that the venture model of building big companies as big as they can be and then selling them on to like, you know, kind of like the greater fool, whether it be the public market or like a, another company acquiring them, you could say like that could possibly just be a result of a low interest rate environment. And as we enter at new times that a lot of people believe will be not being a low interest rate environment for a long time, if that's the case, then maybe venture doesn't make as much sense as the world kind of focuses on profitability more. And even when interest rates go down again, the world is still gonna be a little more hesitant about unprofitable stuff. They've gotten burned, so they're not gonna hop into it immediately afterwards. So you can make the case that venture itself maybe doesn't make as much sense, or it needs to come down a lot more to make sense for, for the risk. Or the companies themselves will maybe have to change how they're doing things. You have the final category here, other funds, assets, and topics, starting off with crypto. All right. 
as with everything, I think there's a couple of ways to look at it. On one hand, you could say that crypto is the best risk on asset that, that exists when there's lots of money in the system, lots of liquidity, everyone's gambling on stuff. Like it's hard to beat crypto. You could say that. And I wouldn't argue that one bit. But if that's the case, then we are not in that situation right now. You know, we're in a situation of, of liquidity drying up, of there not being money, of being risk averse, of getting this 5% risk-free rate, that type of thing. So you could claim that crypto makes no sense at all right now, because it's not like it generates profits anywhere. It's just a speculative thing without an underlying like fundamental base of commerce. The other way you could say is that I've always had the, the kind of idea with crypto that you don't really fight the herd. You don't fight the narrative because it's not necessarily logic that drives any of, of the crypto gains or losses. It really is just the overall narrative, like the mob rule kind of really wins in crypto. And so you could say that what's happened the last few weeks with some of these bank implosions and the supposed money printing from the Fed, even though it's not true, but so the supposed money printing from the Fed, that the narrative of crypto has really taken over again. I don't know. I'm not betting on it. Well, actually I did. I made a huge bet to Bitcoin when Balaji made his big million dollar hyperinflation bet recently, because I thought like that was the changing shift of the narrative, the new narrative that's been there for a while, but it was like capturing people again. And so maybe it would take over. I've since reversed that. Crypto is one of those that because it doesn't have a lot of, or any, depending on who you ask, underlying like fundamental value that if the narrative is not really strong, then nothing will happen. I assume something will happen with it again because there'll be a new narrative. There'll be new kind of Ponzi games to play and then go from there. But for now, I'm just kind of chilling. Are we going to talk about a cockroach fund? Our good friend Taylor Pearson runs Mutiny Fund. Yeah, I'm in that. It's been really nice to see it. This idea is like it's a fund that will survive 100 years. If you had to pick one thing, it's like very diversified, different asset classes and, and gold and volatility and, of course, bonds and stocks and stuff like that. And it's up a few percent when everything else is down like double digit percent. So it's kind of lived up to what it's supposed to do. Let's see, we've got debt deals. You know, just did a, a debt deal with a private company, 24% interest rates. We've got Ooh. a lot of like, yeah. Is that in like a high risk category or is that just people who are struggling for liquidity? It seems to not be a high risk category, which means it probably is. But you collateralized your loan with the business assets? Yes. Seen a lot of like distressed PE deals popping up, which is pretty cool. What's that mean? So these companies that maybe they raised some Mr. Capital and didn't make it or their debt is causing a lot of issues. They're just not really working out in this like current environment. There's private equity companies coming in and just like buying them on the cheap or saying, we'll just take hmm. over the debt and stuff like that. And they're doing turnarounds because they kind of like see the easy wins and stuff like that for it. That doesn't work a year and a half ago when anyone can raise money for anything, but it works now. Final two topics. First is how do I invest to avoid inflation? So I've gotten this question a lot and I think it's not really the right way to look at it from my point of view. I basically say there's like two types of inflation. This is my own made up definition, by the way. One is like when the inflation of like the price of goods, your eggs, your milk, your rent and stuff like that. And the other is inflation of assets. 
specifically what happened in like 2021, early 2022. Crypto, real estate, Rolexes, cars, all this stuff went crazy. But I think we're currently in like a very big deflationary environment for assets. And so I think if you're lucky enough to have cash put back and you're an investor and not surviving day to day, then trying to keep up with inflation is a really bad idea because you'll just be reaching for stuff and investing in things that don't matter where really all the stuff you want to buy is just getting cheaper all the time. Even if your eggs are more expensive, your assets are cheaper. And so it makes no sense to, to reach to avoid inflation. And how do you do that? The holy grail, the last item in, our, in your outline is come back to the TMBA podcast and start yourself a healthy, sane cash flow business. It's still the holy grail after all this time. It really is. <laughs> because you can do all this smart investing stuff if your business is dumping 20 grand in your bank account every month. You can cover the mortgage, clothe the kids, go skiing every now and then, and just keep the lights on. Yeah. You don't worry about the valuation of your business. It doesn't matter. You worry about the cash flow from it. Because like the valuation of one of my businesses declined by like 33% from a year ago. The amount of cash it's generating hasn't changed. That's peace of mind. Cool. Well, for the cash flow, it's tmba.com. For the investing, it's investing.io. Yeah, buddy. It's Travis Jameson. We thank you for coming by the TMBA pod. It was great talking to you. There, Hans. Big shout out to Travis Jameson. You can check out what he's up to in his amazing newsletter over at investing.io. We recorded actually a lot more in this conversation. We talked about the pros and cons of business models and basing yourself in the US versus elsewhere. So more of that for a future episode. Thank you too for your emails. They help to define what we cover here on the show. We've been receiving a lot of wonderful ones, a lot of exciting things for the show coming up in the new year. That's it for this week. I'm off to Mexico. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 